1983 was a big year in pop music history. The year opened with the release of Michael Jackson's single, Billie Jean, which catapulted his album Thriller to number one on the Billboard charts for 37 weeks, on its way to becoming the best-selling album of all time. Meanwhile, hip-hop music was slowly rising out of the New York underground, and Tommy Boy Records was trying to ride the wave of their hit release, Planet Rock, by Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force, with a follow-up single, Bambata's Renegades of Funk. But there were two lesser-known productions from 1983 that had brief moments of novelty fame and then faded away. Forgotten, and not even considered musical works in their own right, these two records would turn out to be the seminal works of a whole new genre that emerged 20 years later during the rise of social media. Today I'm going to tell you about those two records and how the genre they created really speaks to a lot of the anxieties that philosophers have had about pop music. You're listening to Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. Today I'm doing a show about the philosophy of music. We're going to look at a very peculiar genre in pop music. Some really old dead philosophers who hated pop music would have a really hard time making sense of this particular genre. It's Music and Philosophy Day on Hi-Fi Nation. Stay tuned. I do think that there might be sometimes a tendency to equate a band or an artist that does something new with a whole new genre. Whether it's a genre or not depends on whether other artists want to follow that person. If they don't, that's not a genre, that's just an interesting outlier. That's Chris Bartell, philosopher of music at Appalachian State University. Here's the first interesting outlier from 1983 that didn't become a genre until 20 years later. group of Italian producers calling themselves Clubhouse released a record that got just inside the American Billboard Top 100 called Do It Again, Billie Jean. Credited as a medley, the record was the first commercially released version of a genre that would later be known as the A versus B mashup. The A track was Billie Jean, and the B track was Steely Dan's 1973 hit Do It Again. My name is Christine Boone. I'm a music theorist. I'm an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. Christine Boone wrote her doctoral dissertation on the defining characteristics and musical properties of mashups. She has a blog called Mashademia. There's a link to it on our website at hifination.org. Something that I think it's important to remember is that the concept of a mashup is not new at all. 
I mean, it goes back at least as far as the Renaissance, maybe even earlier. People were always interpolating the work of other composers into their own compositions. Somebody who famously did it was Handel. That was kind of common musical practice. People would do that. You would recognize the quotation. It was kind of a clever thing to do. Clubhouse's record was an outlier for 20 years, until the early 2000s, when a small handful of DJs started utilizing recording software that allowed you to manipulate recordings in ways that were only possible previously in a recording studio. As the technology became cheaper and more widespread, and social media made it easier for pieces to go viral, mashups became a sensation by the middle of the decade. Today, it's just standard to run across one of these every so often. It's an established enough genre now to have a history and musical analysis. Some of the direct precursors would have been a lot of the collage music of the 1960s avant-garde. Composers like James Tenney, Yoko Ono, some of those New York City avant-garde composers of that time started cutting and splicing magnetic tape. And then that idea I think was influential on some DJs during the 70s. DJ art in the 70s led to digital sampling. And then with the boom of sampling that happened in the 90s, I think that was the most recent precursor to the mashup. A stroke of genius. Mashing up the strokes, hard to explain, and Christina Aguilera's Genie in a Bottle was one of the firsts in the new generation of A versus B mashups in the early 2000s. Christine Boone writes that there are a total of five rules that make for a mashup, all of which Clubhouse's record also had back in 1983. Mashups always use more than one song, which is important. That's where the name comes from. We are mashing up at least two different things. If you are only using one source song, changing it, layering it upon itself, etc., that's fine, but I would call that a remix. I wouldn't call it a mashup. There isn't going to be any new material in a mashup. Somebody would work only with already existing recordings. With a mashup, recognition is kind of key to the genre. If you can't recognize that it is a mashup, it can't possibly have the intended effect upon you as a listener. Mashups have to have vertical interaction. You've got to hear two songs happening at the same time for it to technically be called a mashup. A medley only has horizontal interaction. Horizontal interaction means that a song gets integrated with another song, one after another, in time, with the two songs overlapping in time to a very small extent, or perhaps not at all. Clubhouse's innovation was so new in pop music production that there wasn't a name for it, so it was just closest to a medley, and that's what they called it. The vertical interaction in an A versus B mashup is total. The entire track requires one aspect of a song, song A, played simultaneously with another aspect of another song, song B. There are other properties that make for a mashup that Clubhouse's record also has. Often it is the instrumental background from a single song and a singer from another song. It doesn't have to be that way, but that often happens in a basic mashup. Do, 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 do. 
only one person sings at a time so that you can understand what they're saying. The exception to that is you can have a lead singer and backup singers, but two people aren't going to be singing lead at the same time, for example. And then usually elements from about three songs at a time is kind of the maximum. Just because when you get too many layers happening at the same time, you can't distinguish what's happening in any one of them, and the result ends up being cacophony. And so relatively simple texture, or as simple a texture as would happen in a normal pop song is kind of the rule. Number five is at least one of the songs used to make a mashup will be a popular song, usually with lyrics. Above all, mashups are pop songs and not artistic collage pieces. They're meant to be danced to, they're meant to be fun. You're listening to Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. It's challenging to think about whether A versus B mashups are works of art or something else. If mashup DJs are just that, they're DJs, then they're displaying works of art, not making them. Or if you're the music industry, mashups are just forms of plagiarism and stealing. But notice that mashups can't be all of these things. If you're displaying a work of art, then you're not plagiarizing or stealing it. The point of plagiarism is to pass off part of a composition or recording as your own artistic expression. But a mashup requires you to recognize the source materials and know what they usually sound like. If you're plagiarizing, then you're not mashing. So in this way, mashing is more like displaying art. And displaying art, even in a clever way, is usually not considered an artistic expression in its own right. This problem of how to categorize the mashup isn't just academic. The record industry, and their lawyers, and judges, have to decide whether to think of mashup composers as DJs who are playing music, thieves who are stealing music, or artists who have created new music and should be credited as such. My name is Dr. Christopher Bartell. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at Appalachian State University. There's a very famous distinction that goes back to Nelson Goodman in Languages of Art, where he talks about the distinction between autographic works of art and allographic. An autographic work of art is like an autograph. It's something that can't be copied. The Mona Lisa is that thing hanging in the Louvre. There's only one Mona Lisa. It's that one painting. Picture postcards or print of a Mona Lisa on a side of a mug doesn't count as an instance of the Mona Lisa. It's not a genuine copy. It's a cheap reproduction. And we know that those are different things, that it's not a genuine instance of the work. An allographic work is a work that genuinely can exist in multiple copies. The song Mr. Tambourine Man, written by Bob Dylan, is an allographic work of art. Different people have performed it. Different people have recorded it. Popular music is both an allographic and autographic form of art. And in the law, there are two different copyrights that correspond to this difference. One copyright for the use of the song, the other for the use of the recording. When we judge Mr. Tambourine Man as an allograph, we're judging the song that Bob Dylan wrote, not any particular performance or recording of it. The Birds' recording of Mr. Tambourine Man in 1965 is an autographic piece of art. You might think that 
Dylan's version was better or the birds were better. There you're judging the autograph and not the allograph of Mr. Tambourine Man. Mashups, because they make use of two audio recordings, are an interesting case where you get these two autographic works that come together to create a new work, which is a new autographic work, a new recording. Because it really is this person's voice that's coming through. The plagiarism issue kind of disappears because I can hear that's Christina Aguilera's voice. Nobody's confusing me about where these sounds came from. The new autograph, the mashup, is made up of old autographs and thus is not the same as the old ones. And since the old ones are recognizable, even cited in the title of the mashup, there's no plagiarism. Collages of photographs are a good analogy, but there's something about mashups that go beyond photographic collages. A new mashup isn't just a new autograph. It's also a new allograph. People can, and do, cover them. Here's a recording of the Scissor Sisters hit, Take Your Mama, from 2004. When you grow up, live like a good boy ought to. And your mama takes a shot of her son. Here is DJ Earworm's mashup of the Scissor Sisters with the Beatles for No One from Revolver of 1966. When you grow up, live like a good boy ought to. And your mama takes a shine of her best son. Now, here is a performance by the a cappella group, The Loose Interpretations, in 2012. They're covering Earworm's mashup, not the Scissor Sisters song, nor the Beatles song. And they're not displaying Earworm's mashup. They're performing it. So the mashup is an instance of an allographic work. It's as much a composition as the other two pieces that it uses. Bartel calls this a kind of emergence, or an emergent work of art. The idea of emergence is the idea that a new work emerges out of the gelling together of two existing works. So you're actually kind of paying attention to three things at once. You're paying attention to the vocal track, which is one source material, and the guitar track, which is another source material, and the way that they blend together beautifully. The emergence involved is not just the result of playing two tracks at the same time. A mashup composer has to make sure that the keys of the two tracks blend well together and has to speed things up or slow things down so that the rhythm is compatible. And when you do that, you change the sound of the track in substantial ways. But to see why, we need some Musicology 101. Christine Boone. So some of those notes fit with the harmony and some of them are non-chord tones. Some of them are points of tension. If that note is in the chord, you, that note is not in the chord. So it adds tension to the melody. The key to composing music is to write a melody around chords in a key. You want to make sure then most of the notes of your melody will be notes in the chord, or chord tones. But some of the notes won't be in the chord, creating tension. And you want tension, 
because where there's tension in music, the listener wants resolution, which makes you want to play a new chord that is no longer tense, so the song goes somewhere and doesn't stay at one chord. If you wanna be with me, baby, there's a price to pay. When you make a mashup, you can't just lay one track on top of another track because you're not guaranteed that the notes in the singing track will fit with the chords in the music track. Here's what a stroke of genius would sound like mashed up in the original keys. If you wanna be with me, baby, there's a price to pay. None of the notes are in any of the chords. It's too much tension. I mean, it just doesn't work. It doesn't sound good together. So what DJ Freelance Hellraiser did was he transposed Christina Aguilera's vocals down by a half step from F minor to E minor. G major and E minor are relative keys. They share almost all of the same notes. And so it's easier to mix together those two keys and have it sound good. But here is the point where new musical properties emerge from the mashing. When you alter the key of a pre-existing singing track to make it fit with a pre-existing musical track, you change the aesthetic quality of a track by changing the points of tension and resolution. When I recontextualize that and transpose it to G, If you wanna be with me Baby, there's a price to pay. It still fits, but it fits in a much different way than it did in the original context. Here are the two tracks side by side, in the original key and the mashed up key. See if you can hear where the points of tension and resolution differ. If you wanna be with me, baby, there's a price to pay. If you wanna be with me, baby, there's a price to pay. The first version sounds like pop. The last note of the chorus there is a chord tone. It sounds complete and resolved. In the alternative key, the mashed up version, the last note is a point of tension. A kind of tension that Christine Boone says is much more common to hear in jazz songs than in pop songs. And so the mashed-up version sounds jazzier. And that's how emergence works in a mashup. When an a cappella group wants to cover the mashup rather than the original versions, they're appreciating the new rhythmic and tonal qualities of the mashup on its own terms. That's the sign that the mashup is judged on its own terms as a musical composition and as a musical autograph. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. I cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movies. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Listening to High Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. Another critique of the mashup comes from problems that people have with pop music more generally. Theodore Adorno was Western philosophy's most prominent critic of popular music. Theoretically, the mashup could be the best example of everything that's horribly wrong with pop art. It shows that all pop music sounds the same. It shows that the consumer of pop music is being made dumb by the music, where the only mental skills you're using is finding something you recognize and then rejoicing at having recognized it. It shows that music makers have lost all sense of skill and musicianship, repackaging what has already been done with slight differences and selling it to an unsophisticated public. It's actually a lot like today's critiques of fast food. Pop music is like industrially produced fast food. And so mashups are the hot dog stuffed crust pizza or the burgerito of music. In fact, isn't it interesting that we directly use food metaphors to talk about art and music? We talk about having good taste or bad taste. Adorno thought that the distinctive feature of pop music is that it's completely standardized. It all sounds the same. You can just predict what will come next once you've heard enough of it. All pop music is verse, chorus, verse. The chorus is the same every time. It has a completely regular and repetitive rhythm. Everything is composed in one octave. The result, according to Adorno, is that people enjoy music in the most unsophisticated way possible. You like pop music just because you recognize it. You either like a hit because you've heard it a million times, or you like something new because it sounds like something you've already heard. You're training your brain for conformity to your own expectations, and he thinks conformity is one of the worst habits of mind to cultivate in a person. Adorno even goes so far as to say that the consumer of popular music really is just reverting to early childhood musical forms like nursery rhymes and Sunday school hymns. That's just a way of saying that pop music is for babies. Popular music also has this feature for Adorno of creating pseudo-individualism. All that means is that people, especially young people, define their individuality through the niche of popular music they listen to. You listen to crappy pop music while I listen to Radiohead. This pseudo-individualism gives the smug pop listener the sense that they're defining themselves through their pop music, when really it's the entire music industry, 
or culture industry, as Adorno called it, doing all the defining by dulling your brains with pre-digested music that all sounds the same anyway. Ultimately, this is all bad, Adorno says, because as consumers of pop, we end up being conformist, unsophisticated drones in a culturally totalitarian society with our identities and preferences defined for us by state capitalism. Now, I like Adorno, and a lot of pop music does suck, but I'm just not that sympathetic to criticisms of art that speculate about how it poisons the mind and leads to the downfall of society. It's speculation with really weak evidence. I don't hear a lot of pop when I watch videos of Nazi rallies, but I do hear a lot of Wagner. So what gives? Did Adorno just hate pop and found in philosophy a way to justify his hatred of it? Or did he really hate it because of all the reasons he gives? Because, first of all, there's this. The composer Grant Woolard on YouTube mashed up 57 pieces of classical music in one track and then made a follow-up where he mashed up an additional 53. So talk about what all sounds the same. Yeah, all pop music does sound the same, but so does all classical music. And if you take a far enough, far enough lens, you know, so does music, basically, because everything is built on a pre-existing structure. If you're going to write a song, it's going to be in verse-chorus format. If you're going to write a symphony, your first movement is going to be in sonata form. The genius, I think, is taking these kind of pre-existing structures that we use and being creative enough with it to have something new. I think you find out more interesting things about music when you take for granted that music within a genre or pre-existing structure is all going to sound similar. So why not ask the question, what makes for a good piece of work in that genre, and why? What makes for a good A versus B mash, and why? The mashup, as a pop song, is interesting because how good it is doesn't depend on the aesthetic qualities of the original tracks they use. It's not the beauty of Christina Aguilera's voice or the carbonated rhythm of the strokes that make a stroke of genius a good mashup. There are amazing mashups where the source materials are just awful. Do you like Bieber? How about this? I did my job! I think especially with a lot of the earlier mashups, something that was important to a lot of listeners was an element of unexpectedness and an element of humor. And the way that they often achieved that was to combine artists who fell on opposite ends of what I call the slick, raw spectrum. And so slick, what I mean by that is very, very produced. And I don't only mean sound, I also mean image of the artist. So very, very groomed and sparkly and perfect examples of the slick 
side of that continuum would be um, disco music or boy band pop or Britney Spears. And raw, it would be on the other end of the spectrum, which would mean unrehearsed. Often an artist who might look like they just sort of rolled out of bed and onto stage. Guitar tones without a lot of effects. The rise of mashups in the early 2000s reflected that perfectly. The Strokes versus Christina Aguilera. Nirvana versus Beyonce. In fact, Nirvana versus anything and Beyonce versus anything. What's amazing is how much Clubhouse's record in 1983 foresaw the same slick raw clash between Steely Dan and Michael Jackson. But why was this an aesthetic criteria of A versus B mashing? I'm Jordan Roseman, a.k.a. DJ Earworm. I make mashups. Mashup artist Jordan Roseman was there throughout the early days of A versus B mashing. A lot of my fellow mashup artists in the early days, there was this sort of argument about whether this is art or not. So some people were like, no, that's not the point of it. You don't get it. This is social commentary. This is a send up. This is a joke. A lot of the early stuff was based on humor. You know, I mean, oh, Destiny's Child over Nirvana. That is not only, not only does it work, but it's hilarious. Teen Spirit has the, right? You put Bootylicious over it, which is very commercial and appeals to a very different audience. It's a practical joke where you are sending up Nirvana and their seriousness by putting something so shallow as Bootylicious. It's thumbing your nose at Nirvana and their fan base and thumbing your nose at the music industry, especially in the early days, in the early days, I gotta say. It's like giving a big middle finger to the um, music industry. If you look at the pattern of A versus B mashups, both in the composition and consumption of it, the successful and appreciated mashups always seem to offer more than just a clash between slick and raw artists. They also offer a clash between black and white. Masculine and feminine. old and young, country and city, these divisions almost perfectly match the social divisions in the culture. And that's not surprising if you think that the music that we consume are markers of social groups by either reflecting existing social divisions or if you're Adorno, creating them. We're so amused with mashups because the music is as segregated as the social groups. We just don't see such blatant pairings in our social lives. It's also hard to know who exactly is supposed to be getting the middle finger in a mashup. Is it fans of slick music or fans of raw music? The more I listen to these things, the more I think the funniness isn't really at the expense of any one group or fan base. They're illustrations of the absurdity of the social divisions revealed through pop music. I actually think mashup artists and their fans are simultaneously making an Adorno-like critique of the culture of pop while still enjoying the music. There's no going back. 
It's a testament to millennials that they took an obscure record from 1983 and turned it into a trend of openly defiant social commentary. But there is one last critique of the mashup. How can it be art if it's neither a skillful piece of musicianship nor an inspired expression of songwriting? To respond to this, we have to go back to 1983, to the other novelty production that happened in that year. Now you can listen to Hi-Fi Nation with the free Radio Public app. It's a great app for finding and following podcasts. And it also has curated podcast playlists from interesting people. They're like mixtapes, but for podcasts. I've created one myself, which you can listen to right now in Radio Public. Just go to radiopublic.com slash hi-fi nation. You can download the app for iPhone or Android, and you can hear the shows that I chose as some of my personal favorites. You're listening to Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. My name is Steve Stein. I'm an audio producer and, I don't know, married with two cats. Steve Stein was an advertising guy and music lover and DJ in his early 30s during the early days of hip-hop in New York City. The Roxy was a converted bus garage on West 18th Street that had become a roller rink. And it was huge. It was almost a block long. On Friday nights, Cool Lady Blue, who was a promoter, took it over and they had rap night with no roller skating. It was just after Planet Rock had broken and Bambata was playing with Zulu Nation DJs. And man, it was a revelation. The other person in this story is Douglas DeFranco, a friend of Steve's and fellow audio producer in New York City. Douglas at the time was working in a radio production studio on West 45th Street. One of the producers that he worked with came into his studio one day with a job and said, oh, and by the way, I was reading Billboard magazine And one of those labels that you like, Tommy Boy Records, is advertising a remix contest that you and Stein ought to get in on this. And it was a remix, Play That Beat, Mr. DJ. And it was, you know, this contest. And we looked at it and it was like, man. The winner gets $100, a Tommy Boy catalog of records, a t-shirt, and 10 stations in the United States will play your mix at least once. He came by my place, and we picked up, I guess, about a half a dozen crates of my records. Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, we worked on this mix. That mix, done that weekend in 1983, eventually became the first in a series of four mixes done by Douglas DeFranco and Steve Stein, or Double D and Steinsky, called The Lessons. By the time they finished on Sunday, they had the very first Mega Mix mashup, 
incorporating the techniques of remixing, mashing, and medleys, using up to 50 different tracks within a single five-minute composition. I had Steve talk me through the entire mix, and here are the highlights. You can hear his entire commentary, as well as his breakdown of lesson number four, which mixes and mashes jazz and hip-hop, in our bonus content on hifination.org. You see... Three. You see... Two. You see... One. You see... Now we come to the payoff. That's Alex Dreyer. Okay, so this is the record. And this is we're laying in pieces of James Brown. Okay, this, this is where it starts to get kind of eccentric. Okay, so here we are in Culture Club. And you know, you really have to admire Douglas's ability, man, at the timing on everything. Fabulous. Everybody gets this wrong because they think it's Little Richard. It's not. It's Rufus Thomas. This blew everybody's mind. Okay, so this is Grandma's The Flash. This is the Peach Boys. with, I think, the record running over it, if I'm not mistaken. And we were sort of lucky that everything worked out in terms of the key. That's conk. I was coming back from uh, a meeting at my suit and tie job in a suit and tie, and my secretary was waving this pink slip going, you guys won that contest. Tommy Boy called. He wants to talk to you. So I took this thing and called the number, and he went, yeah, 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 that was a pretty good mix. You guys won. Who are you? So we went down, we met them, you know, they took pictures of us. They still kind of couldn't believe it, you know, like, wow, old white guys, look at this. We each got 50 bucks. Week and a half later, they give us a call and they went, you guys are the top 10 request item in every single one of the markets where that thing's being played. They're playing the shit out of it. And pretty soon we could hear it on New York radio. The next time we went to the Roxy, we still got frisked, but we got VIP treatment, so we, we, we cut the line, basically. Went in, and all of a sudden, we were celebs. It was just amazing. We were introduced to Bambata, who was playing records at the time, as these are the guys that did that mix. Everybody knew. They had a VIP room. We went in, and it was like, those are the guys that did that mix, that mix, that mix, like this. And it was just, it was incredible. Like Clubhouse's record, Double D and Steinsky's recording was such a novelty that it wasn't a new genre just an outlier. In this case, it was considered a remix. In hindsight, remixes prior to Double D and Steinsky were different edits of the same recording, lengthening a track for the disco, as in dance remixes, or shortening for the radio. Two decades later, 
when Steve Stein was tucked back into his suburban lifestyle, working 9 to 5, and A versus B mashing became less of a novelty, pop music fans started to hear mashups that sounded like this. Southern style, get wild, old school's coming down in a different color. Whip, 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 picture perfect. You might want to take a flick, 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 flick. And this. When I ask millennials about the top mega mix mashup artists, they give me two names Greg Gillis, aka Girl Talk, who made the first track you heard, and Jordan Roseman, or DJ Earworm, who makes an annual mashup of the Billboard Top 25 hits, which he calls the United States of Pop. He's done this since 2007. What I've become is a mashup DJ of popular music. I've realized that that's very effective because it's playing with people's memories. When I make my mashup, a big part of the impact is that it's triggering all of these memories within people, giving them sort of this collage of their own experience. I know you want pop, you want, you want rock and roll. This year's remix got some phonics. Oh, I got pop, I got, I got rockin' electronic beats. I got your pop music with the future flow. Even if the sky is falling down. The composition that sent DJ Earworm into Megamix stardom was United States of Pop 2009 which now has over 48 million views on YouTube. For most people, it was their very first experience of almost a new genre. So I think that was really impactful. And then the other thing was 2009, the end of 2009, we're still sort of reeling from this financial chaos. And the message was really uplifting. Just the words about not feeling down, bringing yourself back up. It just, I think, struck an emotional chord with the way a lot of people were feeling. And there were some amazing synergies with the music. Everyone was saying the word down. The way it ended up coming together with stringing it together and it felt like one song. And then, and 2009 was a really good year for pop music. The development of the genre of mashing over 10 years shows an interesting trajectory. A musical trend that started as a subversive act in response to the industrial model of music production has become an art form that is recognized and appreciated for its skill and knowledge. I'll sometimes mathematically try to figure out what tempo is gonna do the least damage. And then I go in and I do the musical analysis and figure out what key am I gonna be in that's gonna be most compatible with the most songs. I kind of do a spreadsheet. From there, I start just sketching in that key. The ancient Greek word for all of this is techne. It's a very classical view of art, where art is a matter of knowledge, skill. Techne, or technique, applied to raw materials. In this case, it's knowledge and skill applied to other recordings. To create something with an end or goal. 
In A versus B mashing, the end is to ridicule social divisions. And in megamix mashing, it's to create a snapshot of a generation's experience of popular culture. This way of looking at art sees art as craftsmanship. Adorno would still hate it. And pop music lovers would still hate Adorno. But I think the real basis for Adorno's critique is something we all have in common. I went back to all of Earworm's end-of-year mashes on YouTube and read the comments. The most common theme is that music used to be so good, but today, it's just terrible. Touché. Thanks for listening, and we're halfway through our first season of Hi-Fi Nation. It's going to be a couple of weeks before our next episode, because, quite frankly, I need to keep up. I'm doing this all alone. While you wait for the next episode, please, please, please do one of two favors for me. Either write a review on iTunes or another podcatcher to make the show more prominent, or tell your friends, family, tell your students, tell all the people around you about the show. I'll be back in two weeks with Hackademics and the philosophy of science and knowledge. This episode of Hi-Fi Nation was produced, written, and edited by Barry Lamb. Production assistance from Shanna Andraus. Support for this episode was made possible by the Humanities Writ Large Fellowship at Duke University. Visit us at hifination.org. That's H-I-P-H-I nation.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.